Ridiculous Rock Record Review with your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Mike Cordes. I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. On this episode, we're going to review Metallica's 1991 self-titled record that everyone knows as The Black Album. Rock and Mike, let's start with you. We've covered Metallica before, so give a quick recap of your Metallica history and where you come in with The Black Album. So got in on Master of Puppets. A buddy of mine gave me a dubbed cassette, uh, Body and Justice for All, when it first came out. And that's how I got into Metallica and was waiting at the record store the day this came out in 91. Easy enough. Mm -hmm. Lou. I remember the first time I ever heard Metallica. I moved from Tom, to Tom's River from in 1983, and I made friends with this tall, lanky guy named Steve who had a log cabin house. He lived in a log cabin house. Anyway, he was like a kindred spirit. He was an introverted metal fan, and he had all of these records that I had never heard of. And uh, we would hang around just listening to Diamond Head and Iron Maiden, Saxon, Venom, Merciful Fate, Raven, The Rods, Riot. He was stoked about his recent trip to this uh, place called Rock and Roll Heaven. It was about an hour away in a flea market in East Brunswick, New Jersey, where he picked up this brand new album at Johnny Z's Rock and Roll Heaven booth by four kids from the Bay Area, Metallica, Kill 'Em All. And the picture on the back showed these four pimply-faced kids, not a few years older than us, wearing denim and leather jackets. They weren't all glammed up, and they kind of just looked like they got caught cutting eighth period after smoking <laughs> a bone in the bathroom. The first time he put it on, we both knew that this was like something from outer fucking space. At the time, it was the heaviest, fastest, most different-sounding thing, like metal, that we had ever heard. No one wrote songs like them. No one played that fast. Not yet. For a while, it was all I played. Soon after, it was a show at the Sports 9 Skateway in Morganville, New Jersey. Raven and Metallica in a skating rink. Little did any of us know that night that the band we would saw was, would become this massive stadium sellout band that we know today. It's the, Up on stage was this band that just hired their new guitarist. These were his first ever gigs with him. We had no idea how big they'd get. For now, they were ours, you know, four pimply-faced kids playing the shit that, you know, sounded like nothing else. It melted our fucking faces off. One minute you were standing there watching the band, and next it was fucking mayhem. Everybody slamming into each other, throwing their leather-jacketed bodies at each other like a wild fucking freakout. It was, somebody fell, there was a hand there to reach down and grab them, pulled them back up. You okay, man? Yeah. And you threw them back into the crowd. <laughs> it was different. There was community. You know, it was the same with the punk shows. It was it was brutal, but there wasn't like a viciousness to it. It was fun. If somebody got hurt, they got pulled out and taken care of. So when the Black Album was released, I had written off Metallica due to their last album sucking so bad for me. And I was excited to hear what their new bass player had brought to the mix. Instead, I got served a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> <laughs> and justice for all for me sounded like you took a giant bucket of change and just dumped it on a cement floor for an hour um, it had no dynamics at all and it was like listening to an angle grinder the fan base was changing too. what was a small tight-knit metal community about having fun and getting out and some aggression in the pit turned out to this 
testosterone slugfest with backwards baseball cap wearing asshole roided fucking frat boy meatheads coming into the shows and hurting as many people as it was possible. Fuck that. I'll stand in the back. Better yet, I'm going to go see Jane's Addiction and leave this band to the aggressive douchebags. They're not the same since Cliff died anyway. And that's where I come in with Metallica. That's an incredible story, dude. That's amazing. You're right in there from the beginning. Well, as I've said on previous podcasts, I got on board with Metallica with the And Justice For All album and the video for the song won. Prior to that, thrash metal was too fast and too heavy for me. I was a classic rock and hair metal guy. But once the Justice album clicked, I went absolutely batshit bonkers for this band. I got the three older albums on cassette. Metallica quickly became one of my favorite bands. I mean, I can't emphasize enough how important they were to me at the time, as I think they were to most metal fans in general. You're kind of saying that, Lou. I mean, I know you got off with Justice, but Justice, the most metal fans were still on board with them through Justice. So as Metallica was recording the Black Album, the metal magazines kept up with their progress. And we were told that the songs were going to be shorter and less complex than the tracks on Justice. And I I was okay with that. And then when this album came out in 91, I was in the service. But I was able to get to the mid... I was in the Navy, but I I was actually on shore. So... I was able to get to the midnight opening of the local record store to buy this on cassette. It's the one and only time I ever did that. You know, like like major releases, they would open the record stores would open at midnight so you could get it right away. The only time I ever did that for a record. And I remember how fucking excited I was to get it. Oh, it doesn't have a title. The cover's all black. And I hadn't heard any of the songs or seen any of the videos prior to me picking this up. So I took it back, put it in my tape deck, and press play. And that's where I'll start with this one. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record brought to you by the folks at Wikipedia. Metallica is the eponymous fifth studio album by American heavy metal band Metallica, released on August 12th, 1991 on Elektra Records. It was produced by Bob Rock, James Hetfield, and Lars Ulrich, and was recorded from October 6th, 1990 to June 16th, 1991 at one-on-one recording, Los Angeles, California. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart and is certified 16 times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card. We have James Hetfield on vocals, rhythm guitar, and acoustic guitar. Kirk Hammett on lead guitar. Jason Newstead on bass guitar. And Lars Ulrich on drums and percussion. There are additional musicians, which we'll mention as we see fit. Okay, let's get into a track-by-track analysis of this album. It all starts with Enter Sandman, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. What do you say? So we start right off the album with the first song written for this album. This was the first one written, but it was originally about crib death. It wasn't as kind of veiled in Enter the Sandman mystique. And in fact, the uh, that line, Off to Never Neverland, which has become a staple of now classic rock radio, just not just rock radio, was actually disrupt the perfect family because it's all about this baby dying. 
and uh, Bob Rock and Lars Ulrich uh, realized what they heard. I think they heard cash registers when they heard the riff and the way the song was playing out. So they convinced Hetfield. Hetfield says it's the first time someone ever told them, mm, tone back the lyrics a little bit. <laughs> and they got them to actually change the lyrics back and make it a little bit more ambiguous. In fact, when he switched it over to the Enter Sandman kind of motif of the song, he had explained to Lars what that meant because Lars had never heard of the Sandman before. So that was all. So he had to go back through and he had to just, you know, there was a lot of interworkings with that. Now, the guitar lick before the breakdown. So actually, first of all, I got to say, I like the song. I'm going to say that. I like the song. And it kind of goes without saying for the rest of this podcast that this whole album, there's a lot of ear burn. There's a lot of ear burn on this record, and I don't visit this record that much anymore. That being said, when it came out, the song didn't bother me at all. I was I was all in. So I, I didn't because Lou, like you, the production on Justice pissed me off. I was only 14 when Justice came out. So I'm all, I was playing with, you know, treble and bass and, you know, and Justice had this behind everything that pissed me off so the production for me was much better so i was on board with that i did like the beginning with the drums when Lars is coming in but the the guitar lick before that breakdown is actually a lip it's but it was lifted from magic man by heart kirk hammett has talked about it and he said but what happens is it wasn't from heart it was actually ice t sampled it and he took it from the ice t sample so he heard this little clip and then it ends up being ultimately he nicked Magic Man by heart in this. I've always loved the drums at the beginning. Like I said, the simplicity of the riff never bugged me. And I've always dug the pause before the drums come in because you can picture the explosions, that little pause and then boom, and then it, it comes in. That was made for the arena. Um, the production is stellar. Um, I also heard Kirk uh, Hammett say that the riff was inspired by, um, by Soundgarden's Louder Than Love album, which I love that album by them as well the little kid is bob rock's son and uh but one thing that's interesting is dave mustaine of course had to chime in on this song and dave mustaine once said that this song is a ripoff by a band called excel tapping into the emotional void from 1989 and i went online and it's not uh, it, it's not no for no you can hear similarities there's like sometimes they cross the same train track but they're not the same song but I, I'm all on board. I'm a black album nut liquor. <laughs> <laughs> Lou. I, I was happy when I heard this. Um, finally, they're kind of back. You know, there's bottom end. And holy shit, it's heavy. You know, but it's accessible. It, it's something that your girlfriend won't crinkle her nose at. You, you know, it's not fast. It's not complicated, but it's fucking heavy. Bob Rock unlocked that level of metallic. I like it. it. If it weren't for the constant airplay that ruined the, so you talked about air, mm. ear burn. This is a great tune. I consider it the next logical step for a band like Metallica. Okay. So I press play on the cassette deck and it starts off with a quiet guitar figure. And I'm like, Okay, Metallica does this to open their albums. I know we're going to build up to a big blast off. It's going to happen. I know this. And oh shit, there's Jason Newstead's bass. We can hear him now. That's pretty good. And the track does build up with Lars Ulrich's drums thumping in. And it turns into a mid-tempo hard rock tune that just beefs up the intro guitar figure into the main riff which was written by Kirk Hammett. Mike, that was perfect. I love the history that you just gave to this. It was fantastic. Oh, yeah. So I was like, huh, all right. 
James Hetfield's voice is super produced and way up front. And I've never heard him sound like this before. And he keeps doing these odd vocal mannerisms that become annoying as fuck real quick. <laughs> Blah! Yeah, yeah! Ooh! Whoa! Ugh. The lyrics are about a kid having nightmares, and they even stick the now I lay me down to sleep bedtime prayer in the breakdown. And by now, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I keep waiting for the metal to come. I keep waiting for the thrash beat to slam in, and it never does. And as the track fades out, I'm scratching my head thinking, what did I just listen to? There's a pop sheen on the production that screams 80s hair metal vibes. I mean, hell, the song itself is practically a pop tune. And I'll never forget my initial reaction to this, because after that first listen, it just hit me like a thunderbolt. Holy shit, they're trying to get on the radio. And this did get on the radio, and it still does, and it keeps aging worse and worse for me, so that as soon as I hear it, I feel my blood pressure rise. But oh, listen to me. I mean, this has become probably Metallica's best-known and signature song. It closes most of their concerts now, and it was the first single from the album that reached number 16 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart. And away we go. The next track is Sad But True, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Lou, what do you think? Okay, they're showing off their giant testicles that they've grown. The sludgy, heavy groove. The production just give this song heft. The drums sound huge. James' layered, multi-tracked rhythm guitar just drags you through the dirt like a plow. I like the call and response. I'm your truth. I'm your lies. I'm your pain. The backup vocals are good. The live Jason really ruins this uh, with those horrible fucking proto-mammal stage growls that he did. makes him sound like he's just trying way too hard. Jason, shut the fuck up. You're going to poop your pants. You, you're going to pop a blood vessel. Jesus. <laughs> Good tune, though. Mike. So it's really funny that you started the way you did, because I wrote Sludgy Arena Doom, which is basically, you know, what it is. I, this this song really owes a lot more to Black Sabbath than it does the Nawabum bands that they cut their teeth on. And this whole record, I think this whole record owes more to Sabbath. You know, it's and the thing is, is that Bob Rock, for all the shit he takes, um, he really gave them a lot of space. And that's what I like about the, there's a lot of space in these songs um, that didn't get kind of muddled down. That's what I like. There's it, the drums are incredibly deliberate. I know um, uh, Lars has said before recording this, he listened to like nothing but ACDC for like six months, which is kind of ironic when I saw your shirt, because <laughs> he was talking about how the uh, it was really. And then, and once I heard that, now you listen to it and everything is very Phil Rudd. You know, it's very boom, track, boom, track as he goes through. There's not a lot. He's he's very simple on this album and everything's very deliberate, but it's Hetfield's attitude in his vocals. That's kind of what carries that, that you start to notice as you listen to this record. Um, that line, I'm your life and I no longer care. It's a it's a cool line. 
the heaviness in this track, sad to say, it's because of Bob Rock. When he heard it, he told him the song needs to be heavier, and he told him to down tune. They actually had it tuned higher, um, which I can't imagine. There's a great video, a year and a half in the life of Metallica. And the second part, it shows them where they're getting ready to play the Wembley show, and their sound was off. And Jason Newstead says, normally when they play Sad But True, the whole front row is just like, like vibrating because of the heaviness of this song. And it was so wrong that he said the beginning of the song was more like, which is great to see him do. But this song was actually written during the Master of Puppets sessions. That's how old the basic riff of this song is. Obviously, it was faster. You know, they, they slowed it down a little bit. And Bob Rock has said that he thought that this song was the sonic answer to Zeppelin's Cashmere is where he where he puts it. I know the lyrics are based on a 1978 movie called Magic with Anthony Hopkins, where he plays a, like a like a ventriloquist dummy that kind of slowly takes over a guy. So, but I've always loved this song of all the songs to get ear burn on this record. This one, not so much. Okay. I will give credit where I feel credit is due this episode. So I'm not, I'm, it's not going to be like me totally ripping this thing the whole time because this is a badass song. The main riff doesn't thrash, but it's got a dirty, nasty tone and it's heavy as a pregnant brontosaurus. Ulrich's drums sound as bombastic as Tommy Lee's. And I totally dig that eerie guitar line that runs through the chorus. That, that video, A Year and a Half of Life of Metallica, I, I had that. I think we all had that and watched it. Producer Bob Rock didn't think this guitar line would work, that eerie guitar line in the chorus, but the band stuck to its guns, and a good thing they did. It's really creepy, and it works really well. Hetfield's vocals still irritate me with the all-new effects slathered all over them, but I can overlook them this time. To me, the lyrics seem to be about addiction, kind of similar to Master of Puppets, and how the addiction takes over your entire life and becomes your pain, your dreams, and your hate. And you try to mask the addiction even as it slowly destroys you. I didn't know about the uh, that movie there that you were talking about, Mike. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't make my top 25 Metallica song lists or anything. But it is my favorite on this album by quite a bit. And it was the fifth and final single that reached number 98 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. So it's interesting you brought up Tommy Lee because they said that was one of the reasons why they went with Bob Rock was because they loved the sound of Tommy Lee's drums on Dr. Feelgood. Oh, yes, I know. Yep. And they said that it has to do with the room in Vancouver, the way the drum room is built. The following track is Holier Than Thou, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Mike, start us off. All right. So how, first of all, how does this riff not get you to move? First of all, I love the riff on this song. And again, while the songs are admittedly simpler, and um, but the, the snottiness and even, dare we say, the St. Angers are still there. <laughs> so the uh, so I think that's why, that's why it works. Um, Lars is still doing his Phil Rudd impression. And I love how the solo builds and then winds into the bass and then back to the riff. Um, even in the beginning, I don't um way buried in the mix, Aaron. There's even a talk box underneath mm -hmm. at the very beginning. So I, I when I saw that, I was like, that was on my my 30 things about the black album. I had to throw that one in. 
and uh, but and uh, Bob Rock wanted this as the first song, uh, the first single rather. He thought this should have been the first single. Yeah, right, Bob. <laughs> Didn't it say that in the video? I think it did because it yeah, showed it him talking yeah. to them, and it says, "Yeah, yeah. right, Bob." Lou. Well, this one picks it back up again. This is more what I was expecting from new Metallica. James's right hand is chunky and fast as ever. I love the sentiment too. Judge not, lest ye be judged. James's lyrics are pretty good for this album. He's he's a pretty good lyricist. I like his writing style. The harmonies are on point too. Bob Rock's got him in a deep groove, but the chugging rhythm is classic Metallica. Refined. This sounds matured from a raw, unbridled fire blast to a concentrated, like, blue blowtorch flame that can cut through steel plating. So far, three for three. Very different, mature tunes. Well, it starts off like it wants to thrash, though I do detect some suspicious talk box activity in this intro that gets my dander up. But then, nope. It turns into an up-tempo hard rocker that most definitely does not thrash. And by this point, I need some thrash in my life. I'm fucking bewildered with this record so far. To me, the main riff is nothing special. It's kind of simple. And they stay on it for nearly the entire track. Yeah, great. I can hear Jason's bass. But this production is fucking slick and unwelcome. This doesn't even sound like the same band I was once so enamored with. Heffield barks out the lyrics in which he calls out religious people for acting like they're better than the rest of us when they most definitely are not. Heffield has big issues with religion, and I can certainly understand that. I've got no problem with that. But you're not fooling me, fellas. Bob Rock wanted this to be the first single so that the fans wouldn't think that Metallica had gone soft. But to me, this track just sounds like bad imitation Motorhead. And yeah, Motorhead is a formative influence on Metallica, but James Heffield is no Lemmy, not by a long shot. The next track is The Unforgiven, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Lou, your thoughts? <laughs> I get what they were trying to do. The mood's like an old Western. It it reminds me of those music recitals that your parents always had to go to when they, you know, to listen to their kids slog through their mediocre, dragged out performance that they've been working on after school. I'm the barber of Seville. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? Why did you do this, Metallica? Bob Rock, why? Why did you lead them down this path? This screams sellout. It screams corporate rock. Even the solo sounds forced and derivative. Kirk Hammett sounds like a school recital kid that plays all the notes, but there's not a bit of soul between them. And although it's technically perfect, it falls flat and just kind of feels ungenuine. The fact that it got played in heavy rotation killed any like that I had for it, and I wouldn't be sad if I never heard it again. Can you imagine some huge mulleted neck tattooed behemoth with a barbed wire tattoo around his bicep wiping a tear from his leathery cheek like, <laughs> He just gets me. 
I don't think so. <laughs> Live, James sounds like there's a gun to his head to play this song. Nope. No, sir. I don't like it. Rocky Mike. So Lou and I are going to differ on this one. So, I mean, obviously, if you've listened to rock radio in the past 30 years, you've heard this song. Now, whether you like it or not is a different story. <laughs> That's a completely different story. But I think it's fair to say even your most superficial rock fan just there, you know, just listens to the radio. They know this song. So I know Hetfield's vocals are soft and they're double tracked. And when he's, you know, I dub the unforgive. That's what really caused Metallica fans to be like, what the fuck? Um, and I, and I get it. Um, because even when this came out 30 years ago, even I was like, ah, I don't quite know about this. Um, but lyrically, I always took it as like a fuck you. Like we're going to, you know, it's still a dark, ba it's a ballad, but it's not, you know, it's not a love song. <laughs> it's definitely not a love song. The video was dark. You know, they still did something creepy with the video. They And where I still don't quite know what was going on in the video with the guy in the room in the box and carving the hole and all that kind of weird I, I don't understand um but i do like the solo in this i it's probably my favorite solo on the record um you know again back to that year and a half in the life i mean bob rock and kirk hammett had it out over this solo um they really had it out and then you know it kind of paid off and kudos to bob for you know, not giving a shit where he was calling them all out you know even lars was stammering when he was trying to talk to bob bob was pushing him it was it's great to watch every once in a while you can look up just that scene on youtube but it does suffer from a major ear burn like lou it, even though i do like it more than you do i don't care if i ever hear this again let alone unforgiven 2 and unforgiven 3 this is another one i kind of liked <laughs> even though it definitely does not thrash I do like the main chord progression and I like the lyrics. I kind of used to personally identify with them about a boy who's forced to conform and follow the rules of his overbearing parents, which causes him to withdraw into himself. And as he grows into an adult, he still has to follow societal rules. And so he's never free to be himself. And he dies a bitter old man and cannot forgive either the forces throughout his life that held him down or himself for never standing up for himself. I still don't like the way Hetfield is singing, like you were saying, Lou. Bob Rock was trying to get him to do different things, but it fucking grates on me, especially in the softer, acoustic-tinged choruses, which for me are ruined by the vocals. I'm with you there, Lou. Now, here's where I'm on Team Mike. Kirk Hammett turns in one of his very finest solos he ever came up with, and I will say his solos in general are... <sighs> Pretty much well done on this record, or they would be, except that this is the album where Mr. Wawa loses his fucking mind with the effect. And now it's just part of his sound. He can't drown the notes enough in the Wawa muck. Unfortunately, this song later spawned the two dreadful sequel tracks. But this first one was the second single that reached number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The following track is Wherever I May Roam. Written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich.
Rock and Mike. Let's have it. So we've got a sitar, a gong, and a 12-string bass on a Metallica track before the riff kicks in. So, <laughs> um, And that riff actually starts rather slow. And then once the drums come in, it kind of kicks up the tempo of the riff. Um, into a Rocker, it's got a ton of space. Again, ear burn on this one for me. I don't think they could have done this song earlier in their career because they never had a conventional rhythm section. So um, Newstead has said that before this record, there was no rhythm section. Lars just aped and followed along whatever the rhythm track was doing. Um, so this one, in addition to when they, they, they had to play as a conventional rhythm section for this one, you do that with a simpler style and it, it kind of worked, but it's, you know, it's Hetfield's kind of the attitude and the voice, you know, because it's basically a love song of, about being on the road um, that put this one together for me. Um, I've always liked this track. Um, I think Aaron, you said it best. It's not in the top 25, but I don't hate it. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep going. Hello. Well, we're still in that same spaghetti Western that the last song dropped us into. Um, this time it's cooler, heavier, less sensitive. The big bass bombs at the beginning sound like an anvil kind of being struck in the depths of Dante's Inferno. Very cool. It feels a little trills at the end of the riff set off a mood like flames licking at your sack. Hammett's <laughs> stepping on his wall like he's killing a herd of invading cockroaches by the end as it fades out. Another sign of Bob Rock's infiltration into this band is turning them into commies a song at a time, slowly, where it doesn't, re- you know, where you don't realize it's happening until it's too late and they've totally taken you over from the inside. It's like a cancer. Bob Rock is a cancer in this band. He sure the fuck is. I hate this song. I have always hated this song. <laughs> With its goofy sitar aping the main riff and the faux Eastern music vibe that goes into a plodding rocker that isn't thrash. Fuck, it's not even metal. It's a dull, hard rock tune that has plodding verses and mid-tempo pre-choruses and choruses that trudge straight toward the tar pits. I can't stand Hetfield's vocals, which are in your fucking face with this production. So I take my time anywhere. Ugh. And the lyrics are yet another road song. The ba- This band already did that and much better in songs like Motor Breath. Except this time, Hetfield compares the band to desert travelers and nomads. Yeah, sure, James. Fuck off. And did I just praise Hammett on the last track? Holy shitballs, Batman. Mr. Wawa takes the effect to another level. <laughs> this solo sounds horrendous. It's sopping in the shit. And this motherfucker is an agonizing six minutes, 44 seconds, which I endured over and over to properly prepare this review for you, (laughs) dear listeners. You're welcome. This piece of shit was the fourth single that reached number 82 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And under that part where he goes, I ask no one, there's actually a backwards, yeah, (laughs) underneath The next track is Don't Tread on Me, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Lou, how about this one? 
for the longest time, I thought he was saying, Seductor of Pain! <laughs> That's actually a cool line. That's a better lyric. Don't try to me! I was like, really? That's what it's... Oh, it's the title of the song. Because I never really, you know... It, it was always it went into my CD player and I played the whole thing. This is a filler track. It's the same sludgy stomp groove that they've fallen into for this this record. It's nothing too fast. But they got their nutsack out. And it's swinging low on this one. It's a big ballsy groove. Carries us all the way through with little change. Kirk gives more of the same wah solo as then it goes through one more verse cycle and before it just stops. Rock and Mike. So we're on track six, and this is only the second song we've covered so far that wasn't a single. <laughs> so, I mean, it tells you how, I mean, 16 million copies later. Filler. Um it's just it for me, it's another sludgy offering that the beginning they've admitted it's a note for note lift of the song America from West Side Story. <laughs> and once I read that, I went back and listened. I went, fuck, they're absolutely right. Now that's all I hear. I just picture all the girls in the big dresses like. That's where that riff comes from. I was like, yeah. it sounds yeah. like revolutionary, like revolutionary. Nah, 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 I'm thinking, nah, 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 no, is that like nah, nah, you know nah, what they used to like nah, play yeah. on the battlefield? No, it's fucking West Side Story. God it's damn it. It's West Side it. Story. And they've admitted it's West Side Story. <laughs> um, so again, you know, a lot of space, blah, 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 blah. Phil Rudd, blah, 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 blah. And um, this is my... Mike's unimpressed fluffy fuckery. <laughs> Hey, Metallica musically quotes West Side Story. What's next? The Sound of Music? The hills are alive with Metallica. (laughs) Then it goes into a choppy riff on top of a mid-tempo swinging shuffle beat. And at this point, I'm rapidly losing hope that the band I love so much will ever show itself on this record. The lyrics are pro-American jingo sloganeering, as referenced by the Don't Tread on Me slogan on the Gadsden flag, the rattlesnake image of which is on the Black Album album cover. Hetfield warns the enemies of America, do not fuck with us or we will fuck you up. Come on, James. You're a better lyric writer than that. That's redneck country music bullshit. But maybe you just wanted to lead the crowd in a chant of USA, USA. Get the fuck out of here with this. I read that he was referencing the American Revolutionary War. What? Is he a historian now? Does he think they're Iron Maiden or something? Because James Hetfield is no Steve Harris. I also read that a Canadian woman scared off a cougar that was following her in the woods by playing this song at it on her cell phone. You see, even a mountain lion knows a shit song when he hears it. The following track is Through the Never, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Rock and Mike, you like this one? I a hell of a lot better than Don't Tread on Me. I do. Um, so I do like this one. One of the faster riffs on the album. I like how the riff, though, the riff only moves between the vocals. 
it just kind of chugs while while Hetfield's singing, but it kind of moves a little bit between. Um, again, double track vocals, which are all over this record. But I do like the breakdown with the vocals before the riff comes back. And I think for a non, uh, just for a, for a, an album track, I'm on board with this one. Lou, James is the riff meister. He's there's three or four on this tune, and it's much more complex than you first notice. But on repeated listens, there's there's a lot going on. Unfortunately, the song tries to, but never takes off for me. And uh, it becomes the second filler track on the record for me. Okay, here's a track that I find tolerable. I do like that insistent up-tempo riff. I like the start and stop passage at the end of the chorus. We'll be never putting dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I like that. And I like that Kirk's solo lays off the wah-wah a bit, and it sounds old school and tasty. And holy fuck, we actually get a change of rhythm and tempo in the breakdown section. You were talking about that, Lou. I thought that the band forgot how to do that or something. I still can't stand Hetfield's vocals. He's sounding cartoonishly over the top. And the lyrics to me reflect humankind's trying to understand the nature of the universe, making scientific progress and trying to discover how it works, but also acknowledging that we're just a tiny life form on a tiny planet, cosmically speaking. So there may be knowledge out there that will always be beyond our grasp. Like I said, this is a tolerable track, but it still doesn't thrash. I'm going to keep pounding that point until my brain melts in frustration with this record. A boy like that who kill your brother. (laughs) (laughs) The next track is Nothing Else Matters, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Lou, how about this? Uh-oh. That finger-picked intro is a warning sign that Metallica's gone over to the dark side again. The tender vocals in the verse make my skin bristle as James harmonizes with himself in the chorus. This is Bob Rock's blatant attempt to make Metallica for the masses, and it in turn destroyed every grain of metal credibility that they had. A slow, moody ballad that maybe Metallica could pull off. Unfortunately, it's still a ballad a pussified, repetitive ballad that has no place on a Metallica record. Whatever happened to Kill Fucking Posers? How the Mighty Have Fallen? A band that gave us Damage Incorporated, Battery, Fight Fire with Fire, Creeping Death, Whiplash, The Four Horsemen, now standing in front of a mirror with their hair and pigtails and their mother's bra and panties on, (laughs) rubbing their nipples and singing into a double-ended dildo. (laughs) Fuck this song. (laughs) Fuck Bob Emperor Palpatine Rock for encouraging it. It, This is... Lose obligatory skipper on every record. Loser. (laughs) Rock and Mike. All right, so this is the song that made everyone lose their collective shit when it came out. (laughs) Um, As we just heard from Lou. Um, So... um, you know, James had stated that this song was inspired by Queen. Um, and this song pissed me off for one reason when it came out. And that's because everybody that picked on me for liking Metallica before this album now loved Metallica because of this song. 
that's why I hated this song when it came out. Because like, fuck you, they're not your band. Stay the fuck away from them. You know, and that, so that's why this song pissed me off. I don't really hold that anymore. And I can kind of look at the song separate from, from all of that. As I listened to it, you know, getting ready for this, really, I mean, what's the difference between this and Fade to Black? Better production and James actually sings. That's, that, I mean, Fade to Black, they, they did ballads on album two. So I really can't fault them for doing this. Um, and I knew I was going to have to come up with a way to defend this to you guys. So I actually found a quote from Sir Elton John about this song. And I know what big Elton John aficionados you are. So Elton John said this was one of the greatest songs ever written. Heard, and quote, unquote, it's fucking great. Yeah. Um, so that's the only, that's my only rebuttal. <laughs> the only and then James thing. teared up. Like a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the Howard Stern footage, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I'd tear so up. The, but uh, one, um, one thing about this song, um, Kirk Hammett is nowhere on it. Kirk Hammett does not play one note on this song. Every bit, every guitar, and including the solo, is all James. Hmm. So there we have it. Elton John is also seventy-five and going senile. So you know whatever he says about this song <laughs> is probably the most yeah. unmetal person. Yeah. <laughs> Lou, did you hear an echo? Fuck this song and all the squealing teeny boppers that rode in on its horse. It was the third single that reached number 34 on the Billboard Hot 100, and I want to take a fucking sledgehammer to the radio whenever this comes on, which it does. Metallica. The band's called Metallica. They should have just changed its name to Pussy Willow right here. This is Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The following track is Of Wolf and Man, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Kirk Hammett. Rockin' Mike, keep it going. All right, I think this one's. Uh, I think this song is actually underrated. I really, I actually really like this song a lot. I like the the lyric subject matter. The I think the music works well with it. The thing that I thought was interesting about this is the drums are higher in the mix than the riff. So that was a little weird for me. I, I I'm going off a huge cliff with this, but I'm gonna assume it's because with the whole werewolf story that they're trying to possibly um like a heartbeat when he's transforming and that's why the drums are higher in the riff but maybe i don't know i'm completely pulling that out of my ass right now and uh, i like the echo they put on it when he sings uh shape shift the solo's okay but it's cool how they i like how they come out of the solo with the spoken transformation part where he's turning into the wolf so i can live with this one lou it's more meat and potatoes at this point at this point in the record i've also accepted that there there's not going to be any sort of thrash territory so i'm thankful that it there is not just another ballad i i dig the production with james shifting back and forth between channels for the back to the meaning kind of uh it, that part kirk gives a decent solo the the middle eight is spooky it shape shifts as it breaks up the monotony of the song before they get back to the meaning back to the meaning <laughs> mike did you fucking compare nothing else matters to fade to black 
I did. Are you out of your fucking gourd, dude? They're not I even had to the try, same. I had to try something. Universe. It just hit. That just dawned in my head right now. <laughs> Are you fucking crazy, dude? <laughs> Holy Fade, shit. Fade to Black is probably. Dude, I fucking reach through the screen right now and slap you. Wake up, Mike. Wake up, no, dude. I, I was trying to hang my hat on anything. <laughs> all I had, all I had was the Elton John quote. <laughs> oh my God. Fade to Black. <laughs> Which it's amazing what black. happens when a cornered animal gets sick. That's right. See, done. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh my the, ass! Uh, All right, fade which one black. Ta- Wolf and Man. <laughs> fade to black is probably one of my top. Is in my top five Metallica songs. Mine too. Oh my god! Right. <laughs> Nothing else matters is not in that top twenty-five that you're talking about. Oh. But I was I was reaching, man. <laughs> I guess you were. Holy shit! Okay. Uh, um. A Wolf and Man. Boy, you can really tell on this album which tracks the band spent time and care with and which ones they just shit out of their assholes. And guess which kind this is? Dumbed down riffs. Dumbed down drums that do sound like cannon fire, I'll give them that. Very odd solo that just sounds tossed off with bunched up clusters of notes. I don't think Hammett was pushed by rock to come up with the goods that day. Hetfield's ridiculous vocals that are laughably dramatic and goofy as all fuck. Shape shift. Oh my! Uh, what the fuck is he doing on this record? The lyrics are about getting in touch with one's primal animal self through the metaphor of a werewolf. But by the time we get to Hetfield's asinine spoken word section, I've already checked out of this mess. I have been present at a Metallica concert where the band actually played this song. And I was so excited to hear it. I was like, they're pulling this one out? Great. I got to go take a piss. The next track is The God That Failed, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. Lou, what do you say? I dig the motivation for this song. James was raised by devout Christian scientists, yet his mother died of cancer that their almighty God didn't heal, despite their devout faith, or her, specifically her devout faith. God betrayed her faith and let her die anyway. There was medicine that could have helped his mother, but it contradicted her faith, and medicine of man was seen as lies from the devil to discourage true believers. The words of the song cut deeply, and he's angry with God, and I don't blame him. Um, the song works for me. Rock and Mike. Uh, we can just echo same thing. I, lyrically, I think this is one of the better better songs on the album. Um, but, you know, holy shit, we can hear Newstead. Um, so I love the bass line in this. I, you know, this, where we're at in the album, I, it's weird. I think right now in the home stretch the album actually takes an upturn for me with the with the with the last three tracks i don't mind the solo it's like a two-stage solo that they break up and the song kind of downshifts before it returns which i thought that was a little cool trick and uh i i also assumed it was about hetfield's mom you know and uh so while i'm not putting it up there with creeping death like I did with Fade to Black and <laughs> Nothing Else Matters. It's it's weird. It almost kind of fits with Creeping Death, 
you know, creeping death telling them the biblical story. And then here it is, the God that failed, you know, so I kind of always see them as kind of being together. But I, I think it's a great album track. Uh, here's another one that I kind of like. It's sludgy, dark and heavy, helped by the fact that it's tuned down a half step. And Newstead's bass is given some prominence. I like that too, Mike. I like that he leads us off with his bass line. And the guitars sort of shoot in following the bass. I like that. Then it settles into a cool, chunky, ugly riff pattern. Hammett's lengthy solo is a good one too. I read that he and Rock together worked out the main melodic line in the solo and that the final version was cobbled together from over a dozen performances. Hammett was proud of this one, and he should be. It twists and turns and goes through many dynamic changes. It's well done. The lyrics are very personal to Hepfield. You described it perfectly, Lou. It's just railing against human reliance on faith that gets unrewarded. Really good lyrics, even though I still hate the vocals, which are still so upfront in the mix that I just want to slap the shit out of Bob Rock. He's as responsible for the decline of Metallica as the band is. Despite that, this is another very tolerable track. The penultimate track is My Friend of Misery, written by James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, and Jason Newstead. You like this one, Rockin' Mike? I do. This is actually probably my favorite song on the album. I, I love this song. I absolutely love this song. Um, again, the bass line, it's, it, the whole song is centered around that melodic bass line. Um, and I think for Newstead, he must feel some sort of vindication at this point when this album came out. He's like, see, I can, I'm here. <laughs> I can play. I'm not just the live guy um, who they left to sing all the Kill em All songs for some reason when they do it. Because James couldn't. <laughs> But lyrically, I, I like the visuals too. Like that, you just stood there screaming. You know, you could you could just picture that. The drums for me, the drums sound great on this. I think is this is the second best solo on the album, behind Unforgiven. I love the how the the tone of that guitar solo completely changes the texture of the song. I think it was well done, and it was a smart choice to change that tone. And I don't think they had ever they've hadn't done anything before that like that obviously but i don't think they've done anything since so i think it was a nice little a nice little change uh to pull out and uh when it comes out of the seagulls squeals kind of that weird ambiance that they have you know you, you kind of can't picture somebody just standing there alone so i love the hell out of this song lou this is also my favorite on the record that bass groove that starts this off just sticks with me for days i've been waking up with it the the intro in my head all week this week this is proof that heavy doesn't need to be fast, as this whole record, well, most of this record is proving. This is a prime example of the power of Metallica and the evolution of their unique, iconic sound. They invented this shit. The bass solo sounds like something out of Cliff Burton's playbook, and it's a nice homage to him. I like how it shifts into low gear for that dual Hammett Hetfield solo, too. Mm -hmm. The composed piece is almost classical in structure, and it shows the chemistry between those two before Hammett just unleashes that wah-soaked response. 
it's great. If I have any criticism is that the song goes on for like one chorus too long. But yeah, this this is deep cut Metallica. I love this song. And the ending calls back to the Enter Sandman drums before ending on a proper power chord. Great tune. Ah, Jason Newstead, I feel for you, man. This band did you dirty from the word go and never let up until they finally drove you away. You deserve much better, my friend of misery. So the Hetfield Ulrich Axis throws Newstead a bone. He gets to co-write a song for the record. And does he come in with a blistering thrasher riff a la Blacken from the Injustice for All album? No. He brings in a slow, meat grinder of a bass line that's so complicated that the rest of the band doesn't seem to know what to do with it. So they just add some drawn-out chords and an elementary thud beat. It's the second dirge-like track in a row, but this motherfucker drags, man. It'll lull you to sleep if you haven't had your caffeine boost yet today. It would have really worked as a sleep aid if they left it as an instrumental like it was initially intended to be. And this solo, oh my ass. It starts with volume swells and then a long guitar-mini section that sounds like bad 80s video game music. Then Mr. Wawa unleashes the wah, and you're gonna like it because Kirk Hammett's gonna ball gag this shit into your throat. Open wide, motherfuckers. The less said about Hetfield's vocals, the better. And the lyrics to me are about a self-pitying person who feels neglected and unheard, yet only sees what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. They bring the misery on themselves and can't get out of their own way, bringing everyone down with them, which is how I feel when I listen to this. I'm fucking miserable. And by the time Hammett launches into another wah-wah-fueled passage at the end, I'm damn near suicidal. Just make it stop. Take this teabag wah solo, Aaron. Take it. (laughs) Take it. Yeah, that's about it. (laughs) And that brings us to the final track, The Struggle Within, written by James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich. How about this last one, Lou? The intro sounds like that they'd open a show with, uh, or maybe that was the idea with this one. What the hell? What the hell? Call and response is classic Metallica, along with that stuttered stops to punctuate some of the words. They pick up the tempo, but still not at blistering speed of the past. It sounds like they might have been going for the, the whole Damage Incorporated thing, but it just doesn't slap as hard. Still a good closer for a very different, but very much more mature record from our Bay Area thrashers. Rockin' Mike. So it opens with that march and probably the fastest riff on the album, which is kind of weird because it's a burner. You can tell they were this song was made to be played live. You know, the solo, the way it builds, and it stops, and he's go, and it goes back in. I thought it was an interesting choice to finish the record with this one, though. I could actually, with that marchy intro and the speed, I almost could picture this starting the album, and then they could have ended it with with something else. But uh, one thing I read online was that the intro to the song has never been played live. That intro, when they play this song, they allow a backing tape to play that part, and they don't they don't play it. So, but it was good. It's, it's a good way to end the end the end the record. 
Marshall-style drums and a military-like guitar mini figure kick this off. And then we get a riff that reminds me quite a bit of Death Trip by the Stooges. I mean, it's not a direct rip, but it has a similar cadence, except that the Stooges track has way more balls, and as a frontman, James Hetfield is no Iggy Pop, not even close. Hmm, what else can I say? Well, it's a bit more up-tempo again, but nope, no thrash. Not a single thrash song on an album by the band that practically invented thrash metal. Just astonishing to me. Oh, the riff pretends to thrash. It's all palm-muted and displays a little speed, but Lars gives it away with his basic ho-hum drum beat. And you guys know what you're doing, right? You know that all these millions of new pop fans you're going to pick up from this record will be scared off if you showed them what you used to be. So you'll throw this in to try and fake out the old school fans into thinking you still got it. But you didn't fool them, boys. They knew. But 16 million albums later, you can laugh your asses off all the way to the bank, which is exactly what you did. (laughs) I don't even blame you. Grunge was right around the corner ready to send all those metal asses packing for a few years there. So get after that pop crowd. They'll make you the biggest band in the world. Shit, where was I? Oh yeah, fuck this song too. Now that the track by track is completed, we'll go over our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which is the black. <laughs> Rock and Mike, what are your final thoughts on Metallica's Black album? All right, so my reaction when this album came out, um, obviously, you know, surprised at the sound change, but I was directed more at the fans that jumped on board, not at the band themselves. Um, I mean, the, the production, as we talked about, it's light years better than Justice. And it, I, I appreciated that. You know, they, they made a conscious change on that. And I was happy. Now, you look back at their career. Kill Em All started it all, as we know. Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets perfected it. Justice went a little proggy. So in all seriousness, what was left for them to do? Right. I mean, what were they going to do? Were they going to remake one of those records? That, they, they had already done it all. And um, so they their only choice left was to expand their sound so i don't fault them for it um the production on this album i mean this this album is an album that somebody who's a fan of rock music and cursory fan of metal you're gonna have this album and you should 16 million album sales later you know but for me it's more important is how many bands after this change their sound to try to make their own black album we saw it throughout the whole heavy metal community um right so for me it wasn't metallica selling out it was all those bands after them that tried. Metallica did it first. It was all the bands after them that tried to make their own black album that tried to sell out to try to get those fans. You know, as much as I love Testament, you know, Return to Serenity. What the fuck, dude? I mean, come on. You're, you're, you're trying to make a ballad off uh, just like Metallica did. You know, so many bands. And then you get Megadeth. Dave Mustaine, who can't keep his fucking mouth shut, right? He comes out with a tout le monde. They shoot on the like he's singing in fucking French. Where do you think he got that idea? You like the you know, everybody copied Metallica yet again. They can rail on the album all they want, but they still copied it, which means they were still first. So Metallica wasn't the band to sell out. It was everybody after them that sold out. And the thing is, is that everybody says how grunge killed hair metal. I think this album killed hair metal. Because now all of a sudden it was commercially accessible and it was heavier than anything those hair bands were doing. So now everybody said, oh, fuck, wait a minute. We can sell records and get and still stay heavy and write Sabbath based riffs. I think that I think this album killed hair metal as much as Nirvana did, possibly even more so. Um, so I'm, I'm going to give it a four. Lou. 
I was over Metallica by this record. The meathead faster is better with a million changes and key shifts was so off-putting to me that I, I wrote them off after Injustice for All. Um, you said it was proggy. Yeah, they went proggy, but it was, I, if if that was the trajectory, I would have... I was I was glad to be rid of them. I think that's where Cliff reined them in. Now it just sounded manic, and I didn't I didn't like it at all. When this album came out, and the sound was so drastically different sonically, I I gave them another chance. And there was bottom end, but it was also the sound of them hitting the bottom of the ramp that would shoot them over the Shark Tank for the next couple of records. I give the Black Album a three and a half. It's it's no kill them all, but it's still a listenable hour, although I'm reaching for the skip button a few times, but I give it a three and a half. The songs that became the basis for Metallica's fifth album were written in two months in mid-1990, with many ideas originating during the Damage Justice Tour that ended in October 1989. Deciding to change their working methods and try new ideas, the band hired producer Bob Rock on the basis of his work on the Motley Crue album, Dr. Feelgood. The nine-month-long sessions were arduous and stressful, as Rock altered Metallica's way of doing things and pushed the band much harder than they were accustomed to, making them do numerous takes and clashing frequently with the band members over every aspect of the songs. The album was remixed three times and cost the band $1 million to make. The album cover reflected the eponymous title of the record, the band's logo angled in the top left corner and a coiled Gadsden snake in the lower right corner against an all-black background, thus causing fans to nickname it the Black Album. When it was released, the record was an instant success, going number one in multiple countries and was favorably received by critics. Five singles and music videos were put out for the album, and it continued to sell well year after year to the tune of over 16 million units sold in the United States and over 31 million worldwide. The Black Album stayed on the Billboard 200 chart for over 488 consecutive weeks, the third longest in the chart's history, and is the best-selling album in the U.S. since the beginning of the Nielsen SoundScan tracking era in 1991. Metallica embarked on multiple massive tours around the world for the album that lasted over four years and cemented the group's popularity. The Black Album is a monolith, an unstoppable juggernaut. But by the time I finished listening to this for the first time, I was bewildered and more than a little dismayed. My initial thoughts of they want to get on the radio were supplemented with, why did they dumb down the riffs so much? Why is James singing like that? Why did they dumb down the drum beat so much? And most of all, why is the whole album so fucking slow? There's no sign of thrash metal on this record. And Metallica is one of the big four of thrash? This is barely even a metal album. Now, to tell you the truth, I've always disliked the term sellout when it applies to bands, which basically means going for a commercial sound that will capture the mainstream audience and bring a new level of popularity to a group. I feel that bands have the right to take their music in any direction they want, and if they choose to go to a commercial route, that's their decision. I'll make my determination of whether I like it or not after I listen to the new music. So I usually say whatever when a band supposedly sells out, but not this band. From the beginning, Metallica was a band of the fans. They were going to do things their way. Their intense sound was, in part, a reaction to the pop, rock, glam, metal sound of the Los Angeles Sunset Strip, and the bands in that scene were viewed as wimpy posers. 
Metallica refused to make music videos until they found the vehicle to do it right. For the track one off of Injustice for All, their way, no compromise. Metallica stood for integrity and its fans would live and die for them. I felt that way at the time and it was working. Metallica got no radio airplay, but their records were selling and even music critics were taken by that integrity. The band was getting more and more noticed. They weren't part of the mainstream, but they were dragging the mainstream to them. They were playing at the Grammys in front of stunned, shocked pop stars. And the band was already poised for superstardom. Again, doing it their way. No compromise until this album. This is the ultimate compromise. Metallica runs to and bows to the mainstream and goes corporate. And again, I'm not against corporate music at all. I say go for it. But these guys scoffing at hair metal and then hiring Bob Rock because they like the sound he got on a Motley Crue record? You hypocritical fucks. This is deliberate, calculated, safe, and totally designed for mass consumption. And boy, was it ever. This thing sold like gangbusters, still sells, and transforms Metallica into one of the biggest bands of all time. The point was driven home for me when I went to a Metallica show with my son on the Hardwired tour in 2018. I hadn't seen the band in two decades, so I was curious to see how it would go. There were two young ladies in the seats in front of us. They had to be in their late teens or early 20s. And early on in the show, when the band played Motor Breath, one of their classic thrash tunes, my son and I were yelling and had our fists pumping. And I noticed that the two girls were in their seats, not paying attention and looking at their cell phones. The very next song was Wherever I May Roam, and the girls excitedly jumped to their feet and sang along to that hunk of shit. And I don't fault those young ladies at all. It just illustrated a point for me. I get it. There's the dividing line this album created. So Metallica made their hair metal album and hit Pater. Well, no, no way, that's wrong. They really made their corporate classic rock album. Almost half of these tunes get played on classic rock radio in heavy rotation. Mission accomplished, fellas. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for this review by a certain segment, but I can't help that. I guess music reviews reflect the thoughts and feelings of the reviewer, and I'm I'm not going to compromise that. I'll always be as honest as I can be. And tastes and opinions sometimes change over time. Sometimes a record grows on you. You may have an epiphany where a record just opens up to you where it never did before. That's happened to me on occasion. I think it does for most people. But as years go by, this record has grown more and more sour for me. I harbor more and more venom towards it. It's where Metallica changes for the worse, and I've never viewed them the same way again. Fuck the Black Album. I give it a two. And hey, there is another positive thing I can say about it. At least uh, they didn't cut their hair. I think this is where they joined the Illuminati. That was the problem. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had one part of my final thing that I forgot to add. I was going to say, when they put out Kill Em All, wasn't killing hair metal the whole point? Yes. Yeah. Yes. This, and this is the album that did it. Yes. Yeah. So they finally succeeded. <laughs> and that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com are also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, 
please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. I'm Mike. And I'm Lou. See ya. This is going to be long, fellas. I apologize in advance. <laughs> Mike, that was great. I love that you gave all that, that shit. That was great. Because I didn't. <laughs> I've, you know what the thing is? Is that ever since we said we were going to cover this, every every once in a while I fill in and I've just been looking up different <laughs> stuff. Because, <laughs> like, I knew, I knew how you felt, so I've got a pack and arsenal. <laughs> came loaded for bear. <laughs> yeah, I came loaded for bear. Nice, nice. You need it because I'm, I'm, whoa, I'm going to go fucking off as we, keep, as we keep going. All right. Oh, we lose Lou. <laughs> there he is. Black teeth for floating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So what? So what? Do you remember that in a year and a half where he, he uh, Hetfield doesn't have a voice? And he's trying to get him to sing like one verse. Yeah, yeah. He blew his voice out. His voice that out. was singing doing on their cover of So What. That's how and he it's, blew his and, it's, and it's never recovered. Never. <laughs> no, no, it hasn't. He has to do vocal exercises before each show. He's ne- he's never been able to snarl the same way again. Yep. Fucking Bob Rock. <laughs> the next track is Don't Tread on Me. Uh, Mike, is it your turn? I have to Yeah. I'm just picturing this big purple double-ended dildo. Like, What's that movie there with Jennifer Connelly's with the with the other chick? And they're, they're they got the double-sided dildo and they're ass to ass. You know what I'm talking about? They're they're no. on drugs and like later on in the movie, they, they, she's like with this bunch of Japanese businessmen and like in a circle. They're playing this music and Jennifer Connelly got a double-sided dildo with another chick. <laughs> you guys don't know this movie? No, oh, no, no, I gotta look. I gotta look this up. Jennifer Connelly's hot. Did I say uh, labyrinth? Right? Huh? Did I from say labyrinth? purple? Yeah, from no, I said purple. Oh, yeah, that's what that's what I had in my head. I just didn't think I said it. It's gotta be. No, I said they're all purple. It's double-ended, it's purple. It's got glitter in it. <laughs> oh, you've got one. <laughs> no, you know what? Great start. That's fucking genius, Blue. All right. <laughs> my, my wife is eating broccoli alfredo and opening her mouth and showing me her chewed food. As Yum. We talk. Oh, you're a cool man tonight. Watch out for Dutch ovens. Did, did she hear your dildo story? In, in the sex swing story? <laughs> no, she didn't hear the dildo story. <laughs> your eyes just got about this big, though. Uh, it was the Athena's party you had where I walked in the door with Emily and somebody was holding this big purple. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she went, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that brings. <laughs> <laughs>